back in the book of Revelation this morning. I know progress has been slow <laughs> and um, I'm going to try and speed it up a little bit this morning. We're going to go aim to go through three chapters, Revelation 14 to 16. Uh, we mightn't achieve that, but uh, let's let's see let's see what we can do. Um, and we just just a slight recap before we do. We last time we we looked, we were in in Revelation. Chapter 13, we were looking at the beast from the earth and the beast from the sea. We primarily looked at the beast from the earth. And um, we also finished off with the, the mark of the beast. But we didn't elaborate upon that, so we might get a little more into that this morning. An exciting topic, controversial topic. Um, but let's, let's see where we go uh, this morning. But essentially, we've gone, we started with, again, let's <clears throat> just recap the beginning. The John be given the revelation in chapter one. We see Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last, who was and is, um, who was, who, who died and, but, and who is now alive. So appearing in, in Revelation chapter one, we see the, the letter to the churches in Revelation two and three. And then from Revelation 4, John is brought up uh, to, to the throne, to, to heaven, and he sees the throne room of God. He sees God the Father. He sees Jesus. We have the uh, 144,000 um, in, in chapter 7. And we have the, uh, the, the, the seven seals. And who is, who is worthy to open the seven seals? The Lamb. Does Jesus opens the seven seals? The revealing of the seven seals. We have the seven trumpets. We have the two witnesses, and we have the dragon, the woman, and the child in chapter twelve. And then we come up to uh, the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth in chapter thirteen. So we have covered quite a lot. It's taken a while. We've covered quite a lot. Um, and it's worth remembering again as we read this passage. The context, this was a generally believed to be a circular letter, so to speak, that was written to the seven churches in Asia Minor at the time. Many of the churches would have had a strong Jewish component. So a lot of them would have been Jews uh, who would have converted to Christianity. They were facing per persecution, both from within their Jewish um, brethren among the, the Jewish community within the Jewish community um, <clears throat> there's a reference Jesus references the, the synagogue of Satan twice so these Jews who were actually if you like collaborating or, or ratting or uh, snitching on, on, on the, the Christian Jews to the, to the Roman em Empire who were also persecuting them and there was great pressure there was a great pressure to essentially conform if you wanted to get on in the world, you had to conform to the world system of the time. And most people think that this letter was written at the time of Emperor Nero, who was, had a particular uh, dislike uh, for Christians, and he blamed them for all sorts of things, 
including, as far as I remember, the, the burning of, of, of Rome. So there was a lot of persecution going on. There was martyrdom. There was exclusion from the, the guild, the, 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 the business groups. Um, so there was a lot of pressure at this time. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, we have John, say, John, um, <coughs> John talking about um, the revelation that was given to him by Jesus through an angel about things which must shortly take place. Shortly take place. So, again, there's, there's debate about when that shortly is. Is it, you know, you know, a day is like a thousand years for the Lord. Um, but I think there is a genuine reason to believe that certainly the context at the time, as I said, the persecution made this book, this revelation, particularly relevant to the church at the time. So there was a shortly take place, and then in Revelation chapter 4, after the seven letters were given to the seven churches, we have um, the angel saying, or the voice like a trumpet speaking to, him, to, to John saying, come here and I will show you things which must play, take place after this which must take place after this. So after, presumably, the, the um, circumstances and the events surrounding the, the, the letters to the seven churches must take place. So it's sometime in the future, not as immediate as the, what was happening to the seven churches, if that makes sense. So it's definitely sometime in the future. So we know <clears throat> there's lots of different interpretations, as we said before, in the book of Revelation. And some of them see it as, as it's all completely historical. Some see it as all completely in the, the future, almost all in the future. Um, and then there's probably a middle ground which sees some of it as historical and, and in the future. It's also worth bearing in mind, I've said it before, I'll say it again, about 60% of this book references directly or indirectly the Old Testament. Okay, so some of it is also a reiteration, if you like, of the Old Testament. And there's also um, similarities with the New Testament, in particular with, with uh, Jesus speaking about the end times in the Olivet Discourse. He references, uh, you know, a thief coming. Um, he'll come like a thief in the night and need, the need to be watched and to, and, and to be ready. And we'll talk about that again in a few moments. So there is a reiteration, in a general sense, of Scripture. Okay, so whatever, while there's a revelation of things that are going to take place, whether that's shortly or thereafter, you know, and there's a debate about when it takes place, a lot of the revelation is, can also be seen as a reiteration of things that we know from Scripture already or a reinforcement of what we know from Scripture already, whether they're prophecies or whether they're principles about uh, the divinity of Jesus or the, um, not just the divinity, but the um, implications of his death and resurrection. Okay, so the book of Revelation is both an encouragement to the persecuted church at the time and it also speaks 
to the churches in, in the future. But we need to take a whole view of it, a holistic view, and not, I, I think not just go, oh, well, it's all historical. You know, it's all allegory. Or at the same time go, oh, it's all about the future. It's all about the future, all about the end, the last days. Because it's hard to hold either view fully when you look at the passage. Okay? So, and I think, if you like, the themes in the book of Revelation are bigger than that. They transcend us saying, oh, it's all about the future or it's all about the past. They transcend it. They are, a lot of the themes are eternal themes. Anyway, enough of, 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 uh, enough of the context. Let's go to Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the, the sound of the voice of loud thunder, sorry, the sound of harpers playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. And another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, that great city, because she made, has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then the third angel followed, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out with full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the fate of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labours and their works follow them. Then I looked and behold a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and on his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat in the cloud, Trust your sickle and reap. For the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud trust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. 
And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire and he cried out with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle saying, trust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes were fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,000 600 furlongs. Then I saw another angel in heaven, great and marvellous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having the harps of God, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvellous are your works. Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came seven angels, who, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands, then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath of God, the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were complete. Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. Um, Lord, so much of it is hard to comprehend. We thank you for it, Lord, for you've given it to us to encourage us, Lord, and to bless us. And Father, I do pray now for your Holy Spirit, Lord, to speak to us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I said I was going to do Revelation 14 to 16. <laughs> I think we might keep it to 14 to 15. We'll see how we get on. We see how we get on. So, so many teams here, or so many um, iconic images, if you like, from the book of Revelation. We've got the 144,000. We've got the image of the beast. We've got the mark of the beast. We've got the bowls, the seven bowls of wrath, God's wrath on the earth. We've got the, the sickle, the... Um, the sickle bringing the harvest and we have the grapes of wrath as well so much the cup of indignation there's so much going on here in in terms of biblical imagery and again to <coughs> me um the the point that we need to bear in mind is that this is a particular type of literature apocryphal literature that you don't see nowadays okay so in in many ways it can be particularly hard for us to get our heads around this because it's not something that we're used to to reading in fact probably the only only time we we read something like this is in the book of revelation okay but this was a genre of of literature or of writing in that would have been known in the past uh, to, to the believers and to the, the people of that, that era. 
if you like. And what I would say to you is <clears throat> we need to be careful that we don't uh, miss the wood from the trees. Uh, that we see the bigger picture. Okay? That is something I like more than I, lo I love going to art galleries, not because I know a lot about art or anything like that, but I love going to an art gallery where someone's given a, a, a guide, you know, some art student or historian or whatever, and they're giving a tour of, of the art gallery and, and they'll tell you, you know, a, a particular masterpiece that looks amazing. Uh, but when they tell you about, you know, well, the significance of it and, and notice this, this part here and how this person's face was being painted and the history behind that and all that, the symbolism, it really brings the picture to life. And you, you, you have a greater appreciation, a greater awe for, for the masterpiece that you're looking at. And in a sense, that's sort of the goal we hope to have here when we're looking at Revelation. We don't just read it, but we do understand some of the symbolism. At the same time, you can go with the other extreme where you, you look at all the, the minute, all the, the little um, pieces in the picture, but you don't stand back and appreciate the painting for what it is. Okay, you don't really, you can understand all, the, all the, uh, the background to it, but until you step back and see it in its totality, you don't fully get the, get the picture. You don't get the full picture. Okay? And so it's important that we don't um, go excessively trying to interpret every single symbol. Um, because I, I know in, in Calvary, we, there is a, <clears throat> there's a general tradition of we try to um, interpret scripture line by line, teach line by line, verse by verse. And that's a, very, um, that's, that's a very noble thing to do. But in some cases, it doesn't always work. Um, if, if certainly, if, <laughs> unless you've got a lot of time, um, or you have, um, uh, if, unless you've got a lot of time, especially when there's, there's so much imagery, or unless you can also you know, stand back. So, I suppose the goal here this morning is to look at some of the symbols, but not do it line by line, um, because we would be here all night, and you, we, we might lose a sense of the greater picture. And I, and I don't think apocryphal literature lends itself to a sort of a line by line interpretation. Okay, so let's look at um, the first section of this Revelation 14 chapter uh, one through to five, we have the 144,000. Now, straight away, this has been one of many contentious issues. Who are the 144,000? Are they literal or are they symbolic? Okay. And actually, show of hands, who thinks they're literal? Who thinks they're literal 144,000? Okay, That's, and who, so the rest, I'll take the rest of you. The other two <laughs> think it's the three think it's it's metaphorical. <laughs> I didn't actually. Yeah. Um, so it's a good question. I mean, is it literal or metaphorical? 
Certainly, on the face of it, it looks like it's literal. They seem to be 144,000 people. If you go back to Revelation chapter 7, <clears throat> they're referenced, specifically from 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. And they seem to be like a, <clears throat> a crack squad, almost like a, you know, they are, these are the end time people of God, specifically set aside um, to, to um, do God's will, do God's work in the, in the last days. Okay? And they're of Israeli stock. And the face of it. Others would say, well, actually, I think you're going too far there. It's, it's not literal. And, and one of the reasons they would say that is because <clears throat> when you look at Revelation chapter 7, it talks about the 12 tribes and it, and it lists them. And then, but the next verse, verse, verse 9, says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So, some would say, well, actually, this, these 12 tribes are representative of every, every nation, every tongue, every, all, from all, all um, aspects of, all, all, all parts of Christianity. And what is interesting is the number, 144,000. For those of you who are in any way good at maths, uh, you'll know that 144,000 is 12 by 12 by 1,000. Okay? So obviously 12, we know 12 is one of those recurring themes in the Bible that has significance. We have got the 12 tribes of Israel and we have the 12 apostles. Okay? So it's a significant number, uh, a symbolic number. I don't pretend I know exactly what it means, but I think it's like of a, a completeness 12 is a completeness. So you have 12 by 12 by 1,000. And then 1,000 is also often used as a sort of, like 1,000 generations, you know, uh, he forgives to a his mercy lasts to 1,000 generations. It's almost, not necessarily, it's literally 1,000 generations, but it, it's, a, it's a, sort of a, a shorthand way, way of saying for a very long time. Okay? So some would say, well, this 12 by 12 is like the 12 apostles by the 12 tribes of Israel by a thousand, basically covering the whole, uh, representing the multitude of the whole uh, church body, both Christians and uh, Jews who, who come to know the Lord. I'm not saying it's either, and I'm not saying I know, but certainly um, it's worth thinking about that one as well. And especially <coughs> when you look at it says, I looked and a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now, do we believe that's a literal lamb or not? No? Okay, we don't believe it's a literal lamb. And with him, 144,000. Okay? So, there is an element of where you, you probably need to be consistent. And the 144,000 went, followed the lamb wherever he went. So, do we have 144,000 following a lamb around on Mount Zion? Is it a heavenly Mount Zion? It doesn't say. 
But if it's a literal Mansign, you have this picture of 144,000 following a lamb around Mansign, which seems a bit strange, okay? Which doesn't mean that it isn't a literal 144,000, okay? But like, there was a literal 12 tribes of Israel, and there was a literal 12, tri 12 apostles, okay? All I'm saying is, I think we there's some things we need to hold relatively loosely to, and focus on uh, the message. The message here is that um, these are those who did not defile themselves. In, 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 literally, it says they did not defile themselves with virgins. Okay? Now straight away you're thinking, well, hang on a second. Hang on a second. First of all, that means they're, they're all, presumably they're all males, right? They did not defile themselves with virgins, but there's nothing in the Bible that suggests that sexual relations are defiling as long as it's in the context of marriage. And in, in fact, in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Okay, so there's nothing about being a virgin, you know, that makes you undefiled in a sense. Okay, like you can you can be married and undefiled. Okay, so again, the question ar arises: Well, are they? Is this literal 144,000? Are they? Is this talking about <coughs> again an imagery about? being defiled with, with the world. We, we, we read later in uh, chapter 14, verse 8, <coughs> uh, Babylon is fallen, fallen, and the great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Okay, so there's this great city, Babylon, <coughs> and she's made all nations drink of the wine of her wrath, of the rat of her fornication, okay? So again, this obviously isn't a literal fornication in the sense of it's a city, okay? So you can't have sexual relations with a city, but it's, it's an imagery of an allegiance with Babylon, whatever Babylon is, and not with God. And we see that, I mean, we see that imagery <coughs> throughout the Old Testament where, where Israel itself is, is um, accused by God of committing adultery um, with other nations, with other, other gods, etc. So to me, regardless whether there, there may well be 144,000, there may not. The main point is that there is a, a group of believers who are sold out for the Lord. They're sold out for the Lord. It's hard to know exactly when, when this group is referenced, what, what period, um, but they're called the first fruits. They are the first fruits of, of, to God and to the Lamb. So there's, presumably there's another harvest after them. Okay, if they're the first fruits, another harvest. And certainly in verse... Um, 
in verse 14, we see the, someone like the Son of Man, Jesus, uh, reaping a harvest. Okay? So again, the main point I think we need to take away is that there is a, a group of believers who are sold out for the Lord. Whether they're, they're a symbolic group or, or, or an or a actual group, they are representative representative of those who were sold out for the Lord. So after this 144,000, we then see um, a contrast. So there, the 144,000 have on their heads the Father's name written on their foreheads. So do you think that's literal? I don't know. Have they, have they got the Father's name written on the forehead? My, I would put it to you, to you that probably that is not literal, um, but we know like from the Old Testament, uh, from the book of Deuteronomy, they were told to, to write uh, the law, you know, have the law on their foreheads and on their, uh, their right arms, right? And <clears throat> we see it literally happening in, in some Orthodox Jews, excuse me, you'll see they'll have the little boxes on their forehead and they'll also have a box um, I think on their, on their arm. Okay, so that's a very literal interpretation that they took that but the, I think the main interpretation what God was saying it was the Shema that they, they have in this was what they're saying was you know that you this was a sign of authority that you have God's word was to be the authority over your life and, and over everything you do with your right hand. Okay? So I don't... My guess, my guess is that they didn't literally have their names, don't literally have their names written, uh, the Father's name written on their head. But it is a sign that they um, are obeying God, that he is their ultimate authority. So then we contrast this this holy group, a holy set apart, a nation. You are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, priesthood set apart for the praises of God. We contrast them with this other group who are worshipping um, the, the image of the beast. The be worship the beast and his image. And they receive a mark on their forehead or on their hand. Okay. And God pours out on them the cup of his indignation. Now the cup of his indignation, we, I think we touched on this a couple of weeks ago in, in Psalm 70, since Psalm 75, it talks about God has a cup of indignation when he will come to judge the nations of the earth. It's also in Jeremiah chapter 25, um, when many nations are judged, God will pour out his cup of indignation. And it's almost like <clears throat> this cup... We, the kids are making, the, the current craze is making um, instant, instant porridge. <laughs> you, put the, you put the milk and the oats in, you put it into, into, the, into the microwave on, you know, until it's ready. But a lot of the time, the cup is just overflowing. It comes to a time, you leave it in so long, it overflows. And it's like this cup of indignation reaches the point where it has to be tipped over. So these are contrast to those who are holy, who are set apart for God. The 144,000, whether you, you say they're literal or, or representative. 
representative. Um, and they come after the reference to Babylon. So it seems that Babylon, that great city, whatever that city is, is fallen. And she has made these nations drink of the cup, of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So this is the, the, the judgment, if you like, that they are following Babylon. They are following the beast. They are worshipping the beast and the image of this beast. And they shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Which, when you think about it, is a very strange image. They're being tormented in the presence, but by fire and brimstone, in the presence of the angels and in the presence of the Lamb. I have not got my head around that. But, you know, again, that's something... You know, it doesn't, maybe it doesn't always lend itself to a very literal interpretation. Maybe it does. But how can, the, how can we have the presence of the Lamb uh, coexist with fire and brimstone? And they have no rest, day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of the, his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who commit the keep the commandments of God and the fate of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labours and their works may follow them. <clears throat> so again, we, there's debate. When, when is this from now on? Is this talking about the final tribulation? Or is it from the point that, that John got the revelation? So there's, there's, there's much debate about that again. But what is clear is that those who do the will of God and who die, their works will follow them. So there will be a, a real reward for those who do the will of God. So this is an encouragement for those who are being persecuted that your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. And we, we, can get, we can get discouraged, easily get discouraged. It feels like what we're doing, sometimes there's no fruit. All we're getting is grief for it. And God is saying, your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. God sees. God sees it. You may not get rewarded this side of, of um, the grave. God sees what you're doing. God sees your faithfulness. And then we have the <clears throat> the um, the, wrath, uh, the, the, the the harvest. The first harvest here refers to Jesus um, taking a sickle. It doesn't say what that harvest is. The second harvest is much clearer. It's a harvest of grapes. And it's the grapes of the wrath of God. So we know that there is a wrath of God coming. There is no doubt about it. Absolutely no doubt about it. But the first wrath, or the first harvest, shall I say, appears to be Jesus 
um, harvesting the souls. We know the labors, uh, the, Jesus says, uh, the fields are white unto harvest, but the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest for laborers. So we really do need laborers. We need people to pray for laborers, but we also need those who will labor, especially, especially in these days. So one question that, that you know, is, is, is often in many people's minds, this mark of the beast. What is this mark of the beast? Again, is it a literal? Is it symbolic? What is it? Or is it both? In Revelation chapter 13, we all know the, the famous number, uh, 666. Here is wisdom. Let him who understand calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of the man, his number is six, six, six. It is the number of a man. His number is six, six, six. Now, a couple of ways that's been interpreted. One has been very um, specific to the time that this was, people think this was written, which is in the time of uh, Emperor Nero. Caesar Nero and if you translate it I think it's in I think it's in Hebrew um, we know in Hebrew is Hebrew is kind of a, a relatively unique language I think in that the symbols like the letters in Hebrew also correspond to numbers okay so any anyone who has a whatever your your name is however it is written it would also correspond to a number Okay, so apparently in, in, in back in the day, you would see, could see graffiti like, I love 6952, <laughs> you know? And it was essentially, you know, I love whatever. Um, so, I mean, there's this whole um, study of, of numbers and, and Hebrew letters and all that, and we won't get into that. But apparently, when you write uh, Caesar Nero, it comes out of 666 in, in Hebrew. And certainly, it, 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 it um, how should we say it? It corresponds with the way this, this verse is written. It says, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. So it does saying it isn't the number of a man. And, you know, wink, nod, uh, 666. We all know who that is. You know, there's, there's that element of it, okay? Um, <clears throat> again, others will disagree. They say, oh, you know, there's, there's flaws with that and how you actually um, write down, you have to write in a very specific way, his name, etc., etc. But certainly, it would seem to be a fairly good argument for. Others argue that the 666 represents sort of imperfection. We know the seven it represents perfection and six is kind of short of perfection and it's man, if you like, man's imperfection is 666. When it says the number of a man, 666, it's not the number of God, which is, is seven. Um, so that's another way of, of looking at it. And then of course, many people see it as something in the future, something that's gonna happen 
we're all going to, you know, if, if we don't follow God, we're going to get stamped with 666 on our foreheads and on our hands, right? Now, it mightn't be as obvious as, you know, getting branded like, a, like, a, like cattle, but it could be something like a chip, you know, people say it could be a chip in your forehead or a chip, you know, that you won't be able to get anything. We all know, and we all know that, that probably, the, you know, it's on YouTube, oh, there's a place in Sweden and they've already got this technology in place, et cetera, et cetera. Right? And so it's quite possible that this, this could happen, right? But it's also worth bearing in mind that it may again just be very symbolic of people, people who have basically, as it says, drunk of the, of the, of the, the wine of the wrath of the fornication of Babylon, who, people who basically have compromised compromise for their faith. In those days, it was compromised with, like many of the Jews, the synagogue of Satan, they compromised with the, with the Roman authorities of the, of the day. And the pressure on the Christians was to compromise, but the Christians didn't compromise. And it may be symbolic of that and that they didn't have the authority of God like the, like the um, 144,000. So it could be symbolic of anyone who compromises so that they can get on in this world, but their only view is of this world. Okay? Similarly, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the Antichrist, and it said that many Antichrists have come. We know that there is a man of lawlessness yet to be revealed, but it says that many Antichrists have come, and the spirit of Antichrist is at work at the moment. We know that. Okay? So it could also be that, that Nero was an example of an antichrist or a, a, a prototype of future antichrists that were to come. Many thought it was Adolf Hitler when he was here. People were sure it was Adolf Hitler. He persecuted the Jews. He was evil. Um, so, you know, it's, it doesn't always have to be an either or. Okay? We, I think, and I think if we're not certain, as I said before, we need to... Um, shout about things that the gospel shouts about, whisper about things that the Bible whispers about. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> but certainly, I think the main point here is that we have a group of people, it looks like the, all the nations, the majority, who have not followed God, who have drunk, as it says, of the wine of the wrath of her fornication of Babylon. So, who is Babylon? Again, so much interpretation into this. I remember in the early 90s, you may remember, I remember being pulled out of school, uh, being a big assembly in school when, when America invaded Iraq. And you know, everyone thought this was, this was the final war to end all wars. And of course, those who were into end times were saying, well, there we are, Babylon, Iraq, it's the same place, okay? I don't personally believe that God has it in for Babylon or Iraq specifically. Um, and I think the Babylon that has been talked about here is that world system that sets itself up against God. We know the Tower of Babel is, again, the, the historical prototype of this, the Tower of Babel, when um, all the peoples came together and in there, they wanted to build a tower to heaven. And God scattered them. Okay? Um, and then we know Nebuchadnezzar, 
when he was over Babylon, how he, he raised himself up. He was puffed up with a huge empire. And again, I think Babylon is not necessarily a specific place, but a, uh, a symbol of the world system. And boy, do we see a world system today. Boy, do we see it. And it's against, it is against God and it's against his people. And if you want to get on this world, you can get on this world, but don't mention the name of Jesus. Okay? Whatever you do. So I believe that's probably what, what Babylon is. So we have the contrast, <coughs> 144,000, and then we have everybody else who has this mark of, of the beast. And then in, in chapter 15, <coughs> we have, we have the, the, the prelude, as it says, to the seven bowls of, of wrath that are going to be poured out on the earth. I'm just going to read briefly, <coughs> or, or quickly, uh, the seven bowls, about the seven bowls, and then we will finish. Then, chapter 16, verse 1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became a blood as of, as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and was and is to come, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth angel <coughs> poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great <coughs> river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, for they are the spirit of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered together to the place called, in Hebrew, Armageddon. Then the seven angels poured out his bowl in the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunders and lightnings. There was a great earthquake, such as mighty and great earthquake, as has not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God. To give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, 
since that plague was exceedingly great. So there's no doubt in my mind, and I think reading the scripture, there is no doubt that this chapter 16 does not refer to something that happened historically so far, okay? Nothing, nothing has ever happened on earth that resembles this, this pouring out of these bowls, right? Question is, is, is it a, are they, is this a literal um, occurrence that's going to happen in the future or is it, is, a, is it a symbolic? I think some of the detail would suggest that some of it is literal, okay? But some of it would also suggest that some of it is, is um, metaphorical as well, right? Um, especially the reference again to, to, um, to Babylon. The point for me is that there was a terrible day of judgment coming upon the nations. It spoke about it in the Old Testament. As I said, in Jeremiah, um, it spoke about it in Isaiah, in, in, in Psalms, Psalm 75, this cup of indignation that God will pour out upon the nations. There's no doubt that this is going to happen. If you're a believer, praise the Lord, um, we will be spared of that judgment. There's no doubt about that. Um, Paul says quite clearly that we uh, were, were, were not appointed for wrath. Quite clearly, uh, we will escape that. But it is a day that is coming. A couple of minor things before we go on. We, we, we have the, the river Euphrates drying up. Is that a literal or metaphorical thing? If it happens, we know it will be literal, okay? If we see the river Euphrates drying up, we know it's literal, okay? And there is this battle of Armageddon, this famous battle of Armageddon. Again, is it literal or metaphorical? Some people say it's, a, it's uh, you know, a symbolic of, you know, God triumphing over evil. <clears throat> But it would seem to be a literal battle. Where the battle actually happens is another thing because we know that Jesus comes. Okay, so they might gather for the battle where that actually happens. Uh, we know that, that Jesus comes. What I wanted to draw our attention to here is verse 15. Because this is in this, these three chapters... This is the only verse where Jesus speaks directly. This is the only, the only red letters, as I say, um, of this passage. And Jesus says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Behold, I am coming as a thief. This is not the first time that Jesus has said, Behold, I am coming as a thief. You know, he, he mentions in Matthew, the day of the Lord, it'll come like a thief, a thief in the night. Paul talks about um, the Lord, the day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night. Okay? But he also says, it should not come to you as a surprise. It may come like a thief in the night to those who do not know the Lord, but it should not come as a, like a thief in the night to you. Okay? 
Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Writing to the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says, Because you say I'm rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy gold from me refined in the fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may, may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eyesalve that you may see. This was, this, this was the church that was lukewarm. They were neither hot nor cold. In the church of Sardis, <clears throat> he, he writes, Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. So we have two, two images, the nakedness, no garments, and the teeth coming. So this is Jesus, this is Jesus here, speaking, speaking to the church, speaking to the Christians. So we need to take note as well. We have the, those who are set apart for God, and we have those who have bowed to the image taken the mark, whether it's a literal mark or a metaphorical mark, the point doesn't matter. If you are compromised, if you are compromised, if you love the world more than you love Jesus, if there's, if there's a literal mark going around, you don't need to, you know, it doesn't matter whether you know whether the number is 666 or not, you're going to take it. If, if there's not a literal mark, you're still going to be worshipping the beast, so to speak. So God doesn't want us to be lukewarm. He doesn't want us to compromise. And, you know, I can say with my hand and heart that the Lord, I can see the Lord working in the lives of people in this church. And I'm not saying that because to make me popular, but I can see the Lord working in the lives of people in this church. Um, and that I believe that it is not a lukewarm church. But it could be. We need to keep watch. We need to keep faithful. We need to seek the Lord. We need to love the Lord. We need to love the Lord. If we don't love the Lord, <clears throat> we might have works. We might be, have a name for works. But if we don't love the Lord in our hearts, we're just doing the works. And it's, the pressure is going to probably increase. So we need to get into that place where we actually love the Lord Jesus. We spend time with him. We seek his face. We're not defiled um, with the world. And yet at the same time, of course, Jesus says, I want you in the world. I did not take you out of the world. I want you to be in the world. So we're not talking about, um, you know, a monastery experience here. We are talking about having the presence of Jesus in our lives putting him first, seeking his face, loving his word. It sounds like the same old thing I'm saying all the time, but I know in my heart that's what God wants us to do.
He wants us to be in the vine. He wants us to abide in him in these days. Father, we thank you for your word. We, we know, Lord, your word is, 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 sometimes it's difficult to understand, Lord. And um, <clears throat> Lord, we need you, you need your Holy Spirit, Lord, to help us. Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, I do pray that you will illuminate your word from Revelation to our hearts. You will quicken our hearts to whatever you want to speak from Revelation to us about in our own lives, Lord.